Right, we'll be announcing the winner of uh, our Elvis Presley competition very shortly, but first I'm very happy to welcome Joe Jackson of the Irish Times who will be travelling with our winner to Memphis for all the weekend's activities. How are you doing, Joe? Hi. Follow that dream, Elvis Presley. I just want to remind you, because I said it on day one when we invited, uh, invited you to actually write in and to call in, uh, that Joe Jackson from the Irish Times would be trawling through all of the letters and uh, the recordings of all of the phone calls that you were on talking to us through. Some of the um, letters were, were verging on the edge of crazy territory, just <laughs> citing Elvis titles and anybody assuming that's going to get them to Memphis, try yeah. again in another ten years. But some of the letters were, were amazingly kind of uh, indicative of how deeply people cared for Presley. And one reason that this is important to me is I remember when Presley died, the first article I ever wrote was in Hot Press about Presley's death. But I remember meeting the authors of a book called When Elvis Died. I met them in Memphis and I said, why wasn't there any word in it of the Irish response? And the author said to me, well, we covered Britain and we thought that would be enough. So the whole area of the Irish response to Elvis's death or what he meant to Irish people, which was very central, has never been explored. And when I read through these letters, I realised we've missed, you know, a big area of exploration in terms of our own culture. Amazing letters. OK, uh, we spoke to a lot of you who actually wrote and... Hello? Uh, can I speak to Morris Colgan, please? Speaking. Morris Colgan, this is Gareth O'Callaghan and Joe Jackson on RTE Radio 1. Oh, good morning, Gareth. Good morning, Joe. How are Follow you that dream, Morris. <laughs> oh, good almighty. I'm stunned. Morris, you and Maureen are going to be out at Dublin Airport at round about 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh, that's fabulous. And you're going to board the, uh, the the plane to Boston via Shannon, and then you're uh, going to hang around Logan Airport in Boston for an hour and a half, two hours, and then you're going to fly into Memphis. Oh, God, it's a dream come true. <laughs> the, the, the record you just played is <laughs> very apt. <laughs> very, very apt. Now, listen, i got to ask you to just refresh our memories and tell us exactly uh, what what sort of stunned everybody about your story. Well, that uh, Elvis actually sent uh, Maureen, my wife, a get-my-own message when she was very dangerously ill in hospital in uh, 1961. The letter read, Dear Mrs. Colgan, just a short note to say I hope you're feeling much better. Take care of yourself. Don't worry. Everything will be all right. Sincerely, Elvis Presley. Uh, Maureen, the person about whom the whole nation has heard, and we haven't heard from you, though. No. So it was you who got the letter that has led to you both sitting here en route to Memphis. It was, yes. Okay. And um, I was really, I mean, can't really describe exactly how I felt because I was ill at the time. Right. But when the sister came up the ward and gave me the lovely white envelope and I saw the Elvis address in the corner Which in the is American what? 3761 stamps. Highway 51 South. It was, was yes. Was that before it was even called Elvis Presley Boulevard? Yes, it was. Okay. And uh, she stood there while I opened it up and I just couldn't believe that he sat down all those miles and miles away and, and wrote to me. 
And then, of course, it came to me, Morris must have wrote to him for me to get this wonderful message from Elvis. As we boarded the plane at Shannon, I joked to Morris that most husbands back in 61 would have lit a candle and said a prayer instead of writing to a pop star. He said it wasn't just any pop star, it was Elvis. Happily, however, neither Morris nor Maureen are the kind of sad, misbegotten fanatics who see Elvis as some kind of messiah. Needless to say, nor do I. Though as a lifelong fan, I am totally aware of the emotional, even spiritual power of the man and the mythical status of Graceland. Indeed, as the plane took off, I couldn't help but remember a school essay I'd written about my dream holiday in Memphis, Tennessee. This would be my third visit, but the magic remains the same as when I first wrote these words as a boy of 13. My greatest experience was when I travelled over 3,000 miles to meet my idol, Elvis Presley. It took me three years of working after school and during the summer to collect 250 pounds. which was originally a community church. We stopped outside the steps, and when I put my foot on his driveway, I felt as though the world stood still and everyone was happy. Gary had just shut the door of his car when I heard a heartwarming, Hi, Gary, coming from behind us. I had been listening to that fantastic voice and record for over seven years, so I immediately knew who it was. Elvis said, Who's your friend, Gary? And I stuttered out the words, Joe Jackson. For months I had planned all the questions I would ask him, but now I could barely speak my own name. Maureen, we, uh, you'll have to reserve your kind of excitement for another little while. We now are in Boston Airport, three hours to go before we get to Memphis. Yes. But as we move and route, take me back to the very first time you became aware of Elvis Presley. Well, I was uh, in school, and a friend of mine beautiful coloured photograph stuck on the bottom of a desk. That was the first time I saw Elvis Presley. And what did you think when you saw his face? Well, I thought he was absolutely gorgeous, of course. And and the first thought was, well, he must be able to sing as good as it looks, (laughs) you see. So then then I went to see the film, of course. I wanted to go and see him. I saw Lovely Tender, yes. And, uh, of course, he was everything. A young girl of my age, dreamt. Did you really fancy him? Oh, yes, I did, yes. Me and millions of others. I know, you thought he was the handsomest thing on the planet. I did, yes. Well, you know that in Germany, Priscilla Boulou went to see the same film and fell in love with him, too. Yeah. Not just all the fans, but even his future wife. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. I've made my life complete And I love you so Love me tender Love me true All my dreams fulfill For my darling I love you and I always will. So, one song, Love Me Tender, linked Maureen, Priscilla, and no doubt millions of women in 1956, including June Juanico, one of Elvis's first girlfriends who also was the first person to hear Love Me Tender when he sung it to her on the phone from Hollywood while making the movie. In fact, back in Dublin, I'd interviewed June for an article just hours after the Garrett show. She wished Morris and Maureen well, 
but also told me what it felt like to turn her own fantasies into flesh, such as getting the 21-year-old King of Rock to roll into bed. Though no, they never did go all the way, because just as they were about to on one particular morning, Elvis's mother rapped on the door, walked in, and strange as it may seem, suggested that before they do anything, June should take precautions so she wouldn't get pregnant. But didn't June find it just a little strange that Gladys Presley had been hovering around outside her son's bedroom door? She wasn't hovering. Was she, she was not? sleeping in the room next door. But she stopped. The walls she came were in. thin. She heard us giggling. Uh, I mean, we were laughing hysterically, you know. Well, you know, when you're just young and in love, and you just laugh and laugh and laugh. And and I guess that little signal that it was being it was quiet in there that she, maybe it signaled her that something was not right. <laughs> and she was right. So I mean, it, we had quite a bit of quietness before yeah. before the little. But she okay. did knock. She did not open the door until Elvis said, come in. Have you cursed her since then for coming in? No. Have you not? No, because, see, that makes me special. I'm the it one does. that got away. You are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only, because of, uh, only because of Elvis's mother. <laughs> it's for you. <laughs> it's God calling. <laughs> <laughs> but did you not? I mean, when, when, you were, when you were older and you looked at him, we'd say, and most women I know, and even I've talked to someone like Gordon Stoker, who said that like 68, 69, back in Vegas, said the man was so sexually attractive and dynamic at that particular stage, too. Did you not look at him again and say, well, God damn it? Oh, yeah, in 69, when I went out there to see him? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can't quote me All on right. this. Okay, well, tell me. <laughs> what? I felt like I was going to stick to the chair. Well, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard about that was 69. In 69. Yeah. And I mean, he just, he was the most gorgeous thing. He was, yeah. And uh, I mean, his sideburns were a little too thick All and right. too long. Okay. And his hair was dyed jet black. Yeah. But that did not distract from this gorgeous, tall, right. thin creature right. up there. Right. right. June Juanico, who also claims she'd have become Mrs. Elvis Presley if it wasn't for his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who stopped the relationship in its tracks, afraid that if Elvis married, he'd lose his appeal to female fans. Then again, did Elvis want to marry at 21? I doubt it. Even though he may have acted like what June calls a real southern gentleman, he also took full advantage of all the groupies that went back to his room, sometimes three at a time, sometimes as young as 14. And he brought a series of showgirls back to Graceland when he and June were dating the cad. Even so, many fans saw him less as a sex symbol than simply as a singer with the kind of voice that could help you through troubled times. For 20 years, I've had a miserable life. Family illness almost crippled me. But Elvis helped me keep my sanity. Daily, I close my eyes in the quietness of my room and turn on my player. I imagine myself all alone with the king. Pretend he's singing for me. Meditate on the words of all his love songs or dance around the room to the lively beats of his rock and roll songs. I find myself in another world, a wonderful world, a world I do not want to escape from. But then the tape is over and I return to reality. The morning he died, I was up at 7am to get the breakfast ready for my husband. I turned on the radio and they were playing all Elvis songs. 
I was singing along and delighted to hear them. Then they announced Elvis had died. I broke down and sobbed my heart out. Ten years later, I had problems and contemplated suicide. Elvis appeared to me in a dream. He told me how much I had to live for, and he was right. I never looked back. My first recollection of Elvis was 1958. Then came his ballads like, Are You Lonesome Tonight? When his music was played at the tennis club, you could be dancing with Adrian Mole and think he was Prince Charming. But when the local parish priest heard, It's Now or Never, he nearly flipped his lid. I don't think anyone really understood the words of that song until the priest put it over on the altar. Come hold me tonight, kiss me my darling, tomorrow will be too late. So the young got a scathing lecture from the pulpit on the evils of this man. It was a mortal sin to listen to his music, but it did no good to tell us how evil Elvis was. Like water off a duck's back, we took no heed. We'd discovered hormones for the first time. I am a 12-year-old girl and I think Elvis is brilliant. One day we were out shopping and saw an Elvis tape called The Essential Collection. It had all my favourites. Finally, I saved enough money and bought it. Last year on my holidays I climbed Croke Patrick on a pilgrimage. It was hard, but as I climbed I sang Can't Help Falling in Love. It gave me strength. While most of my friends, like Boyzone or the Spice Girls, they think I'm odd because I like someone who has been dead for 20 years. But I don't mind, because lots of other children probably like Elvis too. about Elvis at all and uh, one day uh, I was taking a ride on the back of my friend's bike and he was singing Blue Suede Shoes and I'd never heard Elvis sing and I said to him that's a strange song you know going by the lyrics Yeah. and I says who sings that and he says oh some guy called Elvis Presley I says really what sort of a name is that Right. I remember going into a, a cafe one morning to play the jukebox to play Bill Haley in fact you know and I spot this strange name, Elvis Presley, which of course would stick in your mind. So I put the coin in, pressed the select button, and the song was I'm playing for keeps. All right. Well, Another love song, the slow ballad. The slow ballad. Right. But which straight away caught my attention. Did it? Oh, straight away, yeah. I knew there was something different by the voice, you know. I thought that's a great ballad, so I played the other side of the record then, which was too much. Now that was a rocker. <laughs> Need your love and all time. Need your love and be mine. Need 
came over to me here in yeah. Memphis, Memphis Airport. You were singing a few bars of what song as we approached? Help me information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Well, you got it. Well, and, we and certainly have. We've arrived and it's roasted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. God, I can't believe it. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? By this stage, our body clocks were telling us it was about 4 in the morning, but it was only 10 p.m. in Memphis. Even so, we had just enough time to drop our bags in the hotel and grab a cab to Graceland. It took about 20 minutes to get there, with the driver explaining he could only take us so far because all the streets near the mansion were cordoned off. He dropped us in the Elvis Presley shopping plaza, directly across the street from Graceland, and before joining the candlelit vigil, we sat at a small wooden table to try to get our bearings and to soak up the atmosphere. It was a suffocatingly hot Mississippi night and the crickets seemed to go into overdrive as soon as I turned on the tape recorder. We sat here and there's blue police lights flashing, there's crowds milling all over the road. I can hear Elvis singing clearly in the background and my heart is reaching back to 1957 when I first heard the young Elvis singing a song in a jukebox. And here I am, thousands of miles away, over in America, in Memphis, where Elvis lived and sang and made the records, where thousands upon thousands of people are coming year after year after year for some strange, peculiar reason. And I know it's strange myself, because I don't know why I loved Elvis so much. Beyond his voice, beyond the music, there was something in the nature of the man itself which was compelling and it's it's difficult I'd have to be a poet to express the sort of feelings that people like taxi drivers and barmaids and people in shops have spoken of Elvis to me and I'm a rationalist and there's no way of rationalising this sort of thing you right. know, it's, it's just an incredible moment in my life all right, but it, it is. A, we're talking about a world of emotion. Yeah. You, you, you either feel this, yeah. or you, if you don't or feel you it, don't. You're in, or you're on an intellectual it. level, you know, and I, I can speak on both levels. There's no explaining it. You right. know, it's beyond the rationality of a scientific understanding. Right. You know, okay. it's it's deeper than that. Reaching out for something that, like people look for things, you know, um, something special in your life. And Elvis really filled that special spot for millions of people around the world. Since the record fairs were Cliff, <laughs> is he's around, is he? Yes, there he is. He's, he's, he's within here anyway. So very, say hello, say hello to RTE. Hello, RTE from outside the gates of Graceland. Okay, so give your name. Give Tom Mahoney. 
What are you doing here? Over visiting Graceland. All right. From Ireland. Third time over. Love it. All right. You know? All right. What about this crowd? I was just talking to. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Is this a regular? I, I've only been this there This is once. the biggest. I All think right. so far. You and know, the, the age group. Unbelievable. Isn't it? Young to old. Right. Do you reckon okay. 87 was big? But there were around about 65,000 people here today. The whole day. Yeah. Well, on the news, we've just come up from the hotel and was saying there are 30 to 40 and they're expecting 50 now. Yeah, yeah that's tonight. unbelievable. I mean, the queue was right across the road. But it really is hard to uh, get people back home to understand that it's not necrophilia, it's not tacky, it's not cheap, it's a celebration. Well, this it's is a great joyful feeling, which is very strange outside this place. It's not necrophilia, we love the music, it's great entertainment around here, the people really enjoying it. It's great to see so many people. Hello! <laughs> How did I find you? How did you find me? I, I couldn't to believe the guys, it. Two of the guys over there pointed you out to me. What? All right, say hello to RTE Radio. Why? Because I'm taking it. I'm doing a documentary. Oh, are you doing it for Yeah, okay, so what? Well, I'll tell you about last night first. First, tell me who your name is. Give me a name. Oh, uh, Cliff Moore. Where are you from? Um, Lurgan, County Armagh. All right, okay. Yeah. All right, so what on earth are you doing standing outside Graceland on Elvis Presley's anniversary? Um, I was waiting for the bus. All right. Um, tell you about last night. No, tell me why you're here, though, here, just for a soundbite. Use your clip. Well, when I heard in 1957 the song Rock and Roll Will Never Die and Rock and Roll Is Here to Stay, I foolishly believed it. All right. So I'm still here. Obviously, he's dead. There's no doubt about that. But really, for us in Ireland or England, who had never seen him when he was alive, we played the records, we saw the films, we saw the photographs. We're still doing the same thing. Good point. You know, so obviously, obviously, he's dead, but to us, we never saw him in the first place. All right. And provided we are still getting the um, the CDs now, the videos now, right. the films, he's still alive to us. There's a song. It's midnight. It's August the 16th. It's just hit the day. And they're playing That's Someone You'll Never Forget. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? It is. And we have the winners of the competition wrapped around each other outside the gates of Graceland. Yeah. Romantic as ever. Romantic as ever. Yeah. Beautiful song. Maureen just went up to the gate and touched the gate. I did. Yeah. She's all emotional now. What feeling ran through you when you touched the gates that you've seen pictures of for 40 years? Uh, yeah. Just that he stood there, you know? That's all. It's easy to believe it with his voice sounding on a Memphis knife and 40 or 50,000 people is. celebrating his yes. life. Just that he was stood there. All right. Like that famous picture where he stands with his hands locked in the gates open. That's yeah. right. Around 57. Yeah. The year you just met and discovered that's him. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Morris, you touched the gate? I certainly did. I always admire those gates with the music on them. I thought they were just great. As a... As a... What would you say? A symbol. 
a symbol of the music behind them. Morris and Maureen standing at the gates of Graceland after a journey that took them 40 years. But what's so great about those gates, you may ask? Well, as Morris said, what they symbolise. Particularly as a result of that photo where a 23-year-old Elvis stands having just bought Graceland and looks every inch the proverbial king of the castle. That's what makes his story a modern-day folktale. And maybe even why fans rush to touch the gate, as though that point of contact makes us all part of the same story. Not so much because we all want to own mansions in Memphis, but because Presley's transformation from white trash poverty to millionaire status shows how far we can travel if we try. As in Maureen and Morris making it to Memphis, I guess, and indeed myself. But what struck us all as we walked through Elvis's home the following day was the way in which he had the room scaled down in size, apparently, to make himself, and his mother in particular, feel more at home in the mansion. In fact, even though we weren't allowed to turn on the tape recorder in his house, that's exactly what we got to talking about the minute we stepped into, well, Elvis's back garden. Morris, this is up on what you were saying about you think it's designed partly not to overwhelm his um, friends. Yeah. I have heard and read that Gladys was overwhelmed by it, even so. Yeah. That, number one, if we look around us, it was in a middle-class area of Memphis. They'd been, they'd been chased out of another middle-class area. Yes. And she apparently felt lost in the space of this house compared to a two-room shack in Tupelo. Can you yeah, understand I that? Can, oh, I yes. can easily understand that because coming from a similar background, when we go into places like the old aristocratic homes and you look around and the rooms are so huge, they're so impersonal. Right. You feel like you're in a museum. Yeah. But this house looks like it's absolutely lived in. Okay. And there's a sense of happiness. Right. Even if yeah. his mother felt a bit lost? Even, yes, we, yeah. we, we could well understand his mother even being more... Uh, coming from a poorer background right, right. back in the what, 20s yeah. you yes. know in the days of the Grapes of Wrath of Van Steinbach yeah. it's, 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 it's a big jump it's a huge jump yeah, it but it's a great jump too isn't it oh, Think of it. oh yes, yes it's yes. a miraculous jump for them yeah. Yeah. Yes. I said when we yes. were standing and we were, being wait, we were being kept waiting at the steps I was saying to, uh, that it must have been magnificent for him at 22 to have moved from Tupelo to Lauderdale Court's estate to various houses and then to just stand in front of this and say, this is mine. Mine, yes. And say to your mum and dad, this is yours. This is it, Can you imagine Elvis in the privacy of, say, of his own bedroom actually (laughs) hugging himself thinking, this is all mine? Yeah, he would. (laughs) He would, wouldn't you? Because that's the type of person he was. You'd you'd have to sort of celebrate it personally where no one could see you. I just walked into his uh, office and you just said... Uh, he'd come from the, the house and along the lovely path overlooking the garden into the office. And this is where we have always imagined Elvis sat and wrote our letters. OK, because he, he did have... This was his room where yes. all the mail came. Yes. And then he took it back to the house. Some letters. Some letters, yeah. And replied to them there. Yeah. Then he sent it back down here to his mailing people and they sent it out to you. That's yeah. it, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, welcome here. Yes. No, this one here. Listening to Morris and Maureen talk about their letter to Elvis, I myself again couldn't help a flashback, not so much to the countless letters I wrote to Elvis when I was a boy, but the letter I didn't write in 1976. That's when I heard him sing those lines. If I am dead, as dead I well may be. From his version of Danny Boy, which somehow made me realise for the first time in my life, not just that Elvis was mortal, but that he just might die before I had a chance to thank him for being, as I said in a poem I also never sent to him, my own personal archangel, dreamweaver and king. Given that he died in 77, 
I never did, of course, get to thank him, until at least ten years later, as I stood beside his grave. As such, I decided that Morris and Maureen should be left on their own to pay their respects in private. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From glen to glen And down the mountainside The summer's gone And all the roses dying Tis you, tis you must go and I must that Elvis himself loved the song you are hearing in the background, it does seem fitting that the tour of Graceland should end in what he described as his meditation garden. That place where, to paraphrase a line from Danny Boy, not only is he now lying, but also where his mother, father and grandmother are buried. And this is where the story ends for many fans. Some move almost trance-like towards his grave, genuflect, say a silent prayer, then sigh deeply, as if they'd been holding their breath since the day he died. Others seem transfixed by the idea that the man who in life was so inaccessible is now separated from them by little more than a small black metal railing. Lost in their own meditations, they lean over, touch the embossed lettering on his tombstone, and it is only at this point that all illusions seem to fade, tears fall, and fans finally have to accept the fact that Elvis really is, after all, dead. Morris and Maureen are no different. But apart from saying that silent prayer, they mark the moment by placing on the grave one of Morris's poems.
Well, all the tributes are here. Of course, everybody has their own personal uh, tribute to Elvis. And um, we've always wanted to come and thank him. Uh, we didn't make it while he was alive and with us. And uh, this opportunity came and now we have actually come and uh, paid not only our last respects to Elvis, but to thank him so much for those wonderful letters he wrote to us in 1961. Now, I know rock and roll is not supposed to be about rules, but I do have a couple I need to mention. Videotaping is strictly prohibited. But of course, there's far more to experience in Memphis than Graceland. It's also the home of the blues and rock and roll. So the next morning, we set off up Union Avenue to the studio of Sun Records, where some say rock and roll was born. Either way, it was here Elvis came as a boy of 18, parking his Crown Electric pickup truck outside and shuffling into the tiny front office, mumbling shyly about how he wanted to make a demo disc for $4. But more than this, Sun Records also was a studio rock visionary Sam Phillips opened in 1950 to record the kind of black blues singers he'd often seen late at night on Beale Street, such as B.B. King, Howling Wolf, both of whom recorded at Sun Records. Later, it became a rallying point for budding rockabilly stars, many of whom got their break at Sun, including Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash and, yes, Elvis. But let's listen to our tour guide from Sun Studio, Mike Conway, pick up the story at this point. Now, legend has it Elvis came here in the summer of 53 to make a custom record for his mother's birthday. It's a nice legend. It's not the truth. It was the summer of 53 that he came here, but Elvis's mother's birthday is in April. Also, the Presley family was so poor at the time, they didn't own a record player. So it's more likely that Elvis was here hoping to be discovered. Now, don't get me wrong. Elvis was a good boy who loved his mama. But he was here hoping Sam Phillips would hear him sing. Well, Elvis's timing was off. The day he showed up, Sam was not here. It was Marion Keisker who taped Elvis's custom record session for him. Now, on that day, Elvis recorded a song called That's When Your Heartaches Begin. And I'm going to play for you now that actual recording. So picture a hot Saturday afternoon in the Memphis summertime. Elvis is a nervous 18-year-old boy with a dime store guitar. He's standing in front of a microphone in a recording studio for the very first time in his life. Now, Marion taped the session. She cut Elvis's record for him, but she also thought that she was hearing something special, and so she saved that tape to play for Sam Phillips. Now, when Sam heard it, boy, he was not impressed. In fact, he was so unimpressed, it took a whole year of Elvis hanging around saying, Hey, Mr. Phillips, remember me before Sam finally invited him in to make his first professional record. All right. 
next and final stop of our weekend tour to Memphis was the Elvis in Concert 1997 in the Mid-South Coliseum. Yeah, you heard that right. Elvis headlining his own memorial concert 20 years after he died. That's what we were promised, courtesy of video technology, which would fill three giant screens with images of Elvis while on the stage below... The music would be played live by all his original musicians, from the 50s such as Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana, right up to those who backed him on his final tours of the 70s like Ronnie Tutt and James Burton. Making the whole event even more memorable was the fact that Elvis had actually played in this particular auditorium in 1974. Likewise, there were rumours that Priscilla would be appearing and maybe even Lisa Presley. Both did. Indeed, for many, the highlight of the night was a video of Lisa and Elvis singing Don't Cry Daddy which unfortunately were not allowed to broadcast, but this was simply this live recording of Elvis with Lisa's voice dubbed. Today I stumble from my bed With thunder crashing in my head My pillow's still wet Last night's tears As I think of giving up A voice inside my coffee cup Kept crying out Ringing in my ears Don't cry, Daddy Daddy, please don't cry Don't cry Daddy, you still got me And little Tommy Together we'll find a brand new moment Daddy, Daddy, please laugh again Daddy, ride us on your back again Oh, Daddy, please don't cry I think there's no greater way to pay tribute to Elvis Presley I honestly wish you were here today to see this say was Lisa doing a duet with Elvis her father. Why not? Okay, no. so what was the highlight? Possibly the wonder of you. All right, why? Because yeah. you love that song. I love him and I love him singing that song. 
the whole 5,000 mile trip was worth it for that one song. Which Don't song? cry, Daddy. This is keeping me going now for the next five years. Is I'll it? be back here for the 25th <laughs> anniversary. I'm really on a high now after seeing all that there tonight, and particularly with Priscilla and Lisa right. making yeah. the appearance. one fantasy remains on the plane back home I couldn't help but think what if I had been able to actually talk to Elvis Presley, interview him like say for example, Elvis why is gospel music so central to your life? The gospel thing is, is just is really what we grew up with you know, more than anything else you know, from the time I was I can remember like two years old when I got old enough I started to sing in church Is that how you got into music? Well, it's one of the ways. One of the ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, uh, it more or less puts your mind at ease. It does mine. You've got to follow that dream wherever that dream may lead. you got to follow that dream to find what you need. Got to find me someone whose heart is free. Someone to look for my dream of me. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.